Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. There's lots to discuss today, and you know, I'm so kind of keyed in on what is our relationship with Hashem? In other words, so many people see Judaism as a things-to-do list. But what about God? Who is your primary relationship with? Is your primary relationship with a checklist? Or is your primary relationship with God? Where is your consciousness at? And in fact, one of the great benefits, one of the turning points of what the Hasidim did, what the, what the Baal Shem Tov did, what the Hasidic revolution did, was it transferred people's consciousness away from the checklist and more toward God. And now I'm in a relationship with God. The checklist still exists. It still very much exists. But the checklist is an aspect of the relationship that you're in, as opposed to some sort of administrative separate reality. So for instance, just to put it in in just human terms for a moment, if, if you love your soulmate and it's her birthday or something like that, so you want to give a, a, a present. You want to express your love in, in certain ways, right? So the mitzvot are expressions of love between us and God. It's a way that we thrive in terms of cultivating and growing this relationship between us and God. Now, it's not for nothing, by the way, that the Gomorrah explains when God gave the Torah at Mount Sinai, that when God spoke these words, you ready for this? And this is the Gomorrah speaking, okay? The Talmud speaking. That they were kisses from God's mouth. That the mitzvot and the words from God were kisses from his mouth. Now, I've never been kissed by a checklist, okay? <laughs> In other words... In other words, if it says, go to the market, and then I go to the market, like, two lips don't come out of the, the little paper and just sort of like, oh, oh David, right? It, it doesn't happen. So, but if I'm in a relationship with God, and then I, I, I deepen the relationship by fulfilling his desire, then all of a sudden there's more light in the world. And all of a sudden my my soul expands, my, my consciousness expands. And so there's this beautiful blossoming that takes place. So I, I think that's important. And, and, and this is one of the things that, that really is at stake and really is at play in understanding on a deeper level what went on with the whole incident with the golden calf. Now, it, it probably doesn't sound obvious what the connection is between what I just was talking about and, and where we went wrong with the golden calf. But I'm going to explain it, and you're going to see that there's a very strong connection. Okay, so the goal is that when we go through life, that we understand that God inhabits and, and saturates all of existence, and that all of our interactions in life, all of reality is an ongoing conversation with God. All the people that we're talking to, all the things that we're doing, 
Everything is an ongoing conversation with God. And that way, we get out of this trap because there's a big, big trap. And, and here's how I, I've been thinking about it lately. So let me express it in these terms. The question is this. Is God an idea in your head? Or are you an idea in God's head? And God doesn't have a head. Okay? So, so that's, that's, the, that, that's the question. Because so many people, and I'm talking about religious people right now, people who are really trying, God is just an idea in their head. And now using the language that we've been discussing so far, that's like saying that God and the mitzvot are a checklist. You understand? It's, it's something other. It's something quantifiable. It's something that can be contained, something limited. It's something other than this massive, infinite reality that you're in the middle of and interacting with constantly. And that's what the Torah is saying. This is like the big step that people have to make if they want to be grown-ups in terms of understanding, like, you know, like, what is Torah talking about? This is, what Torah, this is what Torah is talking about. This is why I always like to emphasize that the Torah is not a book. It exists in book form. You can find it in a book. But the Torah is not a book. The Torah is the fabric of reality itself. So that's what we're learning. We're learning how to interact with reality itself. Now, let me put it another, another way. And I think I heard this idea from Rabbi Tatz. He, he, he has a, a list of words that he likes to go down. And he says, if there's no word for it in the Torah, then this thing doesn't exist. Even if we have a word for it in English, we, we have sort of like made up something, essentially. Now, I'm not talking about modern things like the modern science vocabulary and things like that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about certain concepts, okay? So, believe it or not, believe it or not, there is no word in Torah for the word religion. We don't believe in religion. We believe in reality. <laughs> I don't know what religion is. It's either true or it's not true. If it's not true, I'm not doing it. If it's true, I better be doing it. The mitzvot are a description of reality because the mitzvot are the building blocks of reality. Okay? So, so now, I want to transition into what it means to be in this relationship because you're in this relationship whether you realize it or not. That's the other thing. And we've got to get all these thoughts out, even if it's review, but it's important review because you really have to know these things, okay? And that is, so many people think the following. If, like, people think that, and I call this bad math, okay? Bad math. So what I'm about to say is not true, but this is what people think. God exists to the extent that I believe in him. So that means 
that if I really believe in God, oh yeah, for you, God really exists. And if I don't believe in God, oh yeah, for you, God doesn't exist. But you understand, God exists whether you believe in him or not. <laughs> his existence is not contingent on your believing in him, which should give you a massive appreciation for God. Because think of all the people who don't believe in God, and yet God continues to give them life and health and beautiful things. Like, that's a really awesome God, right? And another quality that you see there is that God is not petty at all. So many people think of God as like, you know, if I do this slight infraction, obviously we should try to do the right thing at all times. But, but their concept of God is this small-minded, bureaucratic, like, principal of a school who's just waiting for me to make a mistake so that he can zap me. And that's, that's the universe that so many people live in. That's their God. That's not God. And what's the, what's the proof that that's not God? Because God sustains and blesses billions of people who don't believe in him. You got to love God for that. And you also see just God's chesed, God's love on a massive level, on that level. Now, imagine if God is blessing and, and, and allowing all these beautiful things to happen for all these people who don't believe in him. What about the people who do believe in him and who are actually trying with all of their might to serve him? How much more so is God loving? How much more so? To cultivate that ultimate relationship, that's like the highest. So, so ideally, all of us are in that category and trying to advance ever higher within that category. Okay, so now with this in mind, I want to start to get into the whole incident of the golden calf. Because you're going to see, we're going to approach it from a different angle, from the angle of relationship. Okay? And not what did we do wrong, although we might touch on that, but what were we supposed to do? You see, the, 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 the golden calf was a very big test. Arguably, it was the final test before Hashem was going to bring Mashiach. And we didn't get it right. So, so there have been books and books and books and books and books written about what we did wrong. What I want to concentrate on is what were we supposed to do, right? That, that's what we need to know now. Okay, we're going to build to that. But let's, let's start at a place that I think is, is very important. You know, Moshe is at the top of the mountain. He's in Mount si top of Mount Sinai. And God tells him, you better get down there. Go, go back down off the mountain to the Jewish people because they're really, the Jewish people are really messing up right now, like big time. Okay, so obviously God tells you, go down, you're going to go down. So Moshe starts going down the mountain and then there's this amazing conversation that takes place that I haven't really heard discussed. I'm going to give you my interpretation of it in a moment. Like this epic 
as far as I'm concerned, epic conversation that takes place. While Moshe is going down the mountain, he meets Yehoshua, right? Yehoshua ben Nun. And of course, Yehoshua is the one who succeeds Moshe, Rabbeinu. And they say that Moshe was like the sun and Yehoshua was like the moon. So what the greatness of Yehoshua was his ability to reflect the Torah of Moshe. Of course, he didn't change any aspect of the Torah of Moshe. That was part of his greatness, just like Moshe didn't change any aspect of the Torah that God gave him. So that was the greatness of Moshe, that he was this pure channel of Torah into the world. And Yehoshua's greatness was he was able then to take that light and reflect it in terms of the next generation. Okay, so there's only one other person in the world who saw the first tablets, the first luchos, before they were smashed. It was Moshe and it was Yoshua when they had this conversation. And now listen to the conversation that they have. Yoshua says to Moshe, it sounds like there's a battle going down there, right? Because they couldn't see it because they're on the, toward, toward the top of the mountain. Not, this is not the top of the mountain yet because Moshe's already come down a bit. Yoshua says, it sounds like there's a battle going on. And Moshe says, no, basically it just sounds like a party is going on. And then, you know, who's right? Well, it sounds like Moshe's right. And then Moshe goes down and he smashes the tablets in order to shock the people and to get their attention. And also, amazingly, the Gomorrah says to rip up the contract between God and the Jewish people because in that contract it says, don't worship idols. So if there's no contract there, then Moshe is saving the Jewish people because then the people didn't violate the contract. Do you understand? This is, this is the Gomorrah's explanation of what Moshe had in mind. Very, very, very amazing. Very amazing. Moshe is doing this to save the Jewish people. Okay. But I want to get back to the words of Yehoshua because this really intrigues me. I would like to suggest the following. Moshe heard what the people were doing wrong. And you know what? Moshe was right. But you know what Yehoshua heard? He heard the battle going on. He heard the battle going on between people and their own Yetzirahs, their own evil inclinations. And I want to say that this is one of the reasons why Yehoshua was worthy, why he merited to be the next leader of the Jewish people. Because he heard the battle going on inside people who are trying to do the right thing while they're doing the wrong thing. Do you hear how deep this is? Most people, and now I'm talking about you and me right now. I'm not trying to explain the Torah now. I'm talking about you and me right now. Most people, we look at each other and there's part of our brain that says, he's doing the right thing, she's doing the right thing, she's doing the wrong thing, he's doing the wrong thing. 
But here's the question. Are you hearing the battle going on inside the person? Are you hearing the battle to do the right thing going on inside the person while they're doing the wrong thing? Are you looking at them with those eyes? Because deep down, all of us want to be doing the right thing. How can we not? We have a piece of God inside of us. We have a piece of God inside of us. Of course we want to do the right thing. Even when we're doing the wrong thing, we want to be doing the right thing. You know, back in the day when we had a Sanhedrin and things like that, if people did certain, not not for everything, but certain categories of wrongdoing, they would administer lashes. Okay, and you know, it wasn't this like sadism event, like there, there are a lot of teachings how they would get someone who's very weak to give the lashes so that the lashes should be soft or whatever it is. You know, it wasn't really about, you know, damaging the person or taking revenge or something crazy like this. But nonetheless, the Torah says, give 40 lashes in these particular instances. And the rabbis understood that that meant 39 lashes. So if the Torah says 40 lashes, how did the rabbis understand that that really means 39 lashes? And one of the explanations that I heard, which I think is very beautiful and very true, and what we're talking about right now is there is a part of us that never, ever wants to do the wrong thing. You can call that the pintalayid. And so how can you give someone 30, 40 lashes when there was part of them that didn't want to do the wrong thing? So we'll say 39 lashes. So again, we're going to go and we're going to get deeper into the explanation of the golden calf, but let's, let's get this idea very strong in our minds. Yehoshua heard the battle going on inside the Jewish people to do the right thing. And I believe this is one of the reasons why he was made into the next leader of the Jewish people. So the question is, when we look at each other, when we look at ourselves, don't just look at the wrongdoing. Try to see the battle going on inside the person, even when they're doing the wrong thing, to want to do the right thing. Okay. Now let's go on to the next section, because I want to... I want to focus in on something that, you know, we read it and we kind of like don't think about it. We kind of just accept it. And then we read on, you know, but I want to just, <laughs> it actually never really occurred to me until this year. I want to focus in on one very strange thing that Moshe does. And, and let's discuss it. Okay. So, you know, what happens, the Jewish people worship the golden calf. Maybe we'll get into more details later about this. We will. And then what Moshe does is he takes the golden calf and he grinds it down into like a powder. And then he mixes the powder with water. 
And then he has the Jewish people drink this combination of the water and the ground down golden calf. Okay, so we're going to get into what's going on here in a moment. But let's just take five steps backwards. Moshe is having us eat the golden calf. <laughs> right? Eat, drink. It's the same thing. What do we... What is going on? The last thing I would want to do is to eat the golden calf. And yet he has everybody eating the golden calf. Did you ever think about this? Like, like the police are coming. Quick. Get rid of the evidence. Eat it, everyone, quick, eat it, eat it. <laughs> That's not what's going on. Why does Moshe want us to eat the golden calf? Okay, so, so it's not normal. Except it makes actually perfect sense. And it's incredibly deep what Moshe is doing. Because if you think about it, maybe you already know this, but we're going to go deeper into this idea. There is a very strong parallel between drinking this solution of the golden calf mixed with water after this event and another incident in the Torah, and that is the Sota. Okay? Because if who was the Sota? The Sota is a woman who is suspected of adultery, of being intimate with another man who is not her husband. She's married at the time. And so she would drink these waters, and it would be determined whether she was guilty or innocent. Okay, because there weren't any witnesses that were present at the time. So, except the, the, the man in question, the other man in question. So it was a way of trying to figure out, you know, what's going on. Now, I just want to tell you a couple of things just about the Sota. One is, because some people like are very sensitive about this, this aspect of the Torah, and they think that it's the Torah is is picking on women and, and like persecuting women, okay? So I want to just give you two little bits of information about the Sota so that you have a better understanding of it. One is that the waters only worked if the man, if her husband was righteous. Meaning to say, if the man was fooling around, the waters didn't work. So, it, so the man had to be righteous in order for this to work. So, so that's, that's important point number one. Important point number two is the way Reb Shlomo explains it. And I'll just kind of cut to the end here, just the explanation itself. Really what the Sota waters were about was to provide a woman who is kind of caught in a very uncomfortable experience with a way, with an opportunity to present the fact that she's innocent. In other words, if a woman was warned, don't be with that man alone, and it just happened to be some crazy circumstances arose, 
and it just turned out that she was with that man again alone, it's very hard for her to prove her innocence. So the Torah created a way where that woman could prove, in fact, that she was righteous and that no wrongdoing took place. And in fact, when that happened, when she was proven righteous, it says in the Torah that she was given all of these blessings, all of these extra blessings. Okay, so just just so you have in mind what's going on here. So, so why is Moshe making us drink this solution of water and the golden calf? And now we're really getting to the depths of the conversation here. You see, the Torah, throughout Torah and Tanakh, God compares himself to us and the relationship that he has with us in many different paradigms, many different types of relationships. So I'll give you, I'll give you the most famous set of paradigms, relationships. That's Avinu Malkinu. We say about God, our father, our king. So, okay, very good. So there is one way of relating to God, like he's your father. There's meaning to say he's very close. There's another way of relating to God as he's our king. The king is in the palace. You know, probably you could go through your whole life and never see the king. Okay, so he's there and he's running the kingdom. He's running the world, but he's far off. Okay, so that, th- those are two that we're very familiar with. Okay. But in Tanakh, there are many, many more things. God is referred to as our doctor. Okay, God is referred to as our best friend. God is referred to as our twin. That's really interesting. And my favorite one, just because it's so surprising, this is in Tanakh, okay? God refers to himself as our big sister. Isn't that something? A lot of people don't know that. Like God is our big sister. Like, amazing, amazing. So you have all of these different relationships going on in terms of, and the question is, if you want to be a good partner, right? If you want to have a relationship, not just with the checklist of the mitzvot, like the way we started this discussion, but you want to have a relationship with God himself, You have to understand that over the course of your lifetime, and even over the course of each day, how God manifests himself in the world, whether it's as your king, as your best friend, right? As your twin, that's going to be changing over the course of the day, over the course of the week, over the course of your life. And if you want to be a good partner, you have to ask yourself, what relationship right now is being called for? What relationship am I in right now? You see, listen. Imagine you are with your boss. Okay? You work at a corporation, and this is the head of the corporation. And, you know, you're with your boss, and... You don't slap your boss on the back, right? You don't, 
you don't like ask him certain questions like, hey, what's going on? You know what I mean? It's like you're not casual with your boss because that's not the proper way to be in that relationship, right? If you're with your wife, right, or your husband, you you don't act like the boss in that relationship. You don't bring the... In other words, what you have to be aware of what circumstance are you at each moment so that you can be in the proper relationship and be the proper partner for that relationship. Okay. So now, what is the ultimate of all the relationships? And so we have an answer. We know the answer. Because it was given to us by Rabbi Akiva. He says the ultimate relationship is the one that's expressed by Shlomo Amelech, King Solomon, in Shira Shirin, in the Song of Songs, which is God as our lover. Right? That is, that's the highest. That's the deepest. That sense of intimacy, that's between us and God. Now listen to this. Do you think it's for nothing? The rabbis, you know, as I heard Rabbi Green say one time, and, and this stays with it, it almost haunts me, these words, that the rabbis were desperate. He used the word desperate. The, the rabbis were desperate to communicate with us. So when they use certain imagery or when they use certain examples, you have to really think about these examples. Like, why did they express it this way? All right. The rabbis say, do you know what the sin of the golden calf was like? It was like, imagine you get married and you're standing under the chuppah with your wife. And then under that same chuppah, you commit an adulterous affair. That's that's a that's pretty heavy language. Very shocking. It's a shocking example that the rabbis are giving. And they're giving this approximately 2,000 years ago. Even more shocking. But what's the point? The point is what I'm trying to tell you right now. Is that they're, t- they're referencing our relationship to God in terms of lovers in terms of husband and wife. By the way, Israel is the wife. We're the kala. Okay. So now, I want to put, start to put all these ideas together. Why did Moshe tell us to eat the golden calf? <laughs> right? Well, he didn't really tell us to do that. But what he was very consciously doing was trying to tell us that we are in a love relationship with God. Now, let me, let me tell you why that's so significant. You see, the Jewish people were terrified. We were, we were terrified. 
When Moshe, it says, I want you to really picture this in your mind. Moshe's at the top of Mount Sinai. And remember, Mount Sinai was not a tall mountain. It was chosen because it was a small mountain, because it was very humble, okay? So Moshe's at the top of the mountain, and it says, he walked into this cloud of darkness. It also says that at Mount Sinai, heaven came down to earth. So when Moshe walked into this dark cloud, Moshe was actually entering into another dimension, right? In order to get the Torah. And the people were like, oh, he's not coming back. <laughs> he's like, I, I don't know where he is. And then when he's six hours late, Moshe, the, the Jewish people are like, yeah, he's definitely not coming back. And then there's a detail that the Gomorrah gives, right? It's on page 88 in, in Masechta Shabbos. That's where all these amazing agadita about the giving of the Torah are. If you want to look it up, page 88 in, in Masechta Shabbos, one of the all-time great pages of the entire Talmud, just, just teaching after teaching of amazing things about the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Well, one of the things that it says is that, you know, what is the Satan? Right? That's, that's this very, you know, negative energy. But the Talmud says, and this is important to know, that we've got these three negative energies in the world. We have the Yetzahara, we have the Malachamavis, and we have the Satan. And all three of these things are the same thing. This is what it says in the Gemara. They're all the same thing. In other words, it's all this energy of negativity in the world, but it's, but it's working at different wavelengths. Okay? So the Yetzahara is attacking our thoughts, so to speak. It wants to influence us to make the wrong decisions. The Malachamavis, we can translate it as the angel of death, wants to attack our body. The Satan is the heavenly accuser. It wants to say, ah, the Jewish people are off here, they're doing this wrong, they're doing that wrong, and trying to bring judgment on us from above. But it's all one energy. And that one energy, this negativity or evil, if you want to call it, it all works for God. Because we don't have the idea of two powers in this world. That's other religions have this idea. It's good versus evil, or it's God versus the devil, and they're battling it out, and who's going to win? That's not Judaism. Ein od novado. There is only one power, Hashem Echad. It is only God. But there is this negativity that God puts into the world so that we can see positivity and negativity and then we can choose the right thing. It's one of the core reasons why God created the entire universe. For this negativity to exist, so that we can look at it and say no to it. One of the greatest teachings, just because it's so short and so sweet and expresses such a giant idea. You ready? It says, when 
when the Satan comes to a person and tries to get you to do the wrong thing, if you say yes to it, it tears its clothes and cries. This is the Satan. And if you say no to it, it jumps up and dances. Do you understand? Because evil itself doesn't want to get you to do the wrong thing. It's very important because you realize, oh yeah, God is behind it. He's just giving us the ability to do the right thing so that God can send more light and more blessing to us and the world. That's the idea. And then, you know, as long as we say that, we also have to say the related teaching, one of the great mashalim, expressing the same idea from the Baal Shem Tov, which is a king has a son. And the son lives in the palace. And the son is always doing the wrong is, is always doing the right thing. So the king doesn't really know, like, is how good is the son? I don't I don't really know. He lives in the palace, he does the right thing, but everyone's looking at him. That's why he's doing the right thing, maybe. Or maybe he's really like unbelievable, but I can't tell. So he sends his son to a faraway place, to a distant province. By the way, my interpretation of this, because you know, especially with Jewish parables, whenever we're talking about the king, obviously we're always talking about God. And whenever we're talking about the son, we're always talking about the Jewish people. Okay, that's throughout. So what does it mean the son is in the palace? I think it means that the soul, our soul is in Shemaim. So when our soul is in Shemaim, we're always doing the right thing. So what does it mean God wants to know what we're really like and sends us to a faraway province? What does that mean? I think that that means that God sends us to be born in this world where we have free choice. I think that that's the meaning of, of this parable. But anyway, we didn't get to the good part yet. <laughs> so... So the son is in a faraway province and the king hires a harlot to seduce the son. Now, the harlot has her job. She has to do what the king says. So she has to try to seduce the son. But she knows that the king loves his son and that the king wants the son to say no to the harlot. But the harlot has to do her job. So as the harlot is seducing the son, she's thinking in her mind the whole time, please say no, please say no, please say no. And that's the Yetzirah. In this example, the harlot is the Yetzirah. The Yetzirah itself wants us to reject it. I saw a teaching from the Balatanya on a separate note, which is that the Yetzirah is an angel and the Yetzirah knows the right thing. So the Yetzirah, when it tries to seduce us, it's telling us lies. And one of the techniques, if I've done this before and it works, it works, okay? So try to remember this. This is a practical tool I'm giving you right now. 
when you're being sort of like when you hear that voice trying to get you and pull you in the wrong direction, here's what you say to it. You don't even believe what you're saying. Why should I believe it? <laughs> you don't even believe it. Why should I believe it? Okay. So, so all of that was just to tell you who the Satan is. So let's get back to the Gemara and let's get back to the sin of the golden calf. All right, let's reset the, let's reset the story. Moshe Rabbeinu is at the top of Mount Sinai. He's disappeared into this dark cloud. He's gone into this other dimension. He's late. He's supposed to be back six hours ago. And now the Gomorrah says the following. God showed the Jewish people an image. The Satan showed, well, they're one and the same, but this is the language that it uses, that the Satan showed the Jewish people an image of Moshe lying in his coffin. Do you hear that? All the people gathered at Mount Sinai saw an image of Moshe being 100% dead. And that's when they did the sin of the golden calf. A very important detail. Very, very important detail and a crucial part of this story in terms of un understanding the psychology of how it is we went into this mass panic, okay? All right. Now listen. Interestingly, all of the rabbis say it wasn't really idol worship. Isn't that interesting? That, that's, we, we think of this as the classic instance of idol worship. And yet they say, no, no, that's not what was going on. The Jewish people didn't think this golden calf was God. Come on, let's get serious. What they were looking for was a replacement for Moshe. What the Jewish people wanted was we, we had this like intermediary, Moshe, and now our intermediary is gone. Now we need a new intermediary. And so we'll make this golden calf. Okay. So now we're starting to get to the nitty gritty here. There's a very interesting question that the Brisker Rav addresses, which is, what was so bad about making the golden calf? On the one hand, it's like, well, wait a second. It's, it's like an idol. It's like, you know, we've made this golden statue. And yet, you want to hear something really interesting? The Mishkan, the tabernacle, is the fixing for the golden calf. And you want to hear something interesting about that? Inside the Holy of Holies, where the Aaron Kodesh, the, the Ark of the Covenant, which holds the tablets from Mount Sinai, on top of it are two golden statues, two golden angels. Well, what's the difference between those golden statues and the golden statue that is the golden calf. And there's a very, you don't have to get philosophical at all. Just on the simplest level, but the simplest level is the deepest level. God asked us to make those statues and God didn't ask us to make this statue. 
Now, let me tell you why that cuts to the core of absolutely everything. Because one of the one of the kind of like the, the core the core wrongdoing, right? The the just like the, the the epicenter of bad that happened with the golden calf was we decided how we are going to serve God. I'm gonna say that again because this is this is absolutely at the core of absolutely everything and goes back to the Garden of Eden and eating from the Tree of Knowledge, everything. We made ourselves the final authority. We decided this is how we're going to serve you, God. Now, the reason why this is so important is because, you see, a lot of people say the following. And now listen very carefully to what I'm saying. There's a way to say what I'm about to say, which isn't so bad. It really, honestly, is not so bad. And there's a way to say what I'm about to say that's horrible. And I'm going to explain the difference in a moment. But first, let me tell you what this statement is. Oh, this mitzvah that you're telling me about? Until you explain it to me, until it makes sense to me, I'm not going to do it. All right, so now... Let me tell you the not-so-bad part of that, which could actually be good, which is that I want to, I'm not ready for it yet. That's okay. That's 100% okay. It, you know, it genuinely it doesn't make sense yet in terms of my Torah learning. That's also okay. But now let me give you the terrible version of it. If I don't like it, it doesn't happen because I'm the final authority. <laughs> that doesn't work. That, that iteration of it absolutely doesn't work. You see, now listen carefully. It's okay to be imperfect. You don't have to get everything and you're never going to get everything because God is infinite and we're finite. So it's okay to be imperfect amidst perfection. It's okay to be imperfect amidst perfection. But don't think of yourself as perfect amidst the imperfection of God. <laughs> like God almost got that mitzvah right. It's, you know, he was so close. He was so close. 25 hours for Shabbos? How about six hours for Shabbos? <laughs> We do Friday night, call it a day, go shopping into the beach on, sh uh, <laughs> on Saturday. You know, Neshama Karlbach, Reb Shlomo's daughter, told me that she was something like 2020 or something like that before she heard the word Saturday for the first time. Can you imagine? All there was was Shabbos. I was, I was at someone's house, a very special person's house, this week. And I was leaving their house, and they had a little child. I don't, I don't know how old this child was, but super young. Old enough to stand. Old enough to stand, but really young. Maybe, let's say, let's say two, okay? And as I'm leaving, the father instructs his child, it was Wednesday, to shake my hand, 
and to wish me a good Shabbos. On Wednesday, Wednesday afternoon. Right? How is this child growing up? Shabbos, 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 Shabbos. You know, Reb Shlomo said, Reb Shlomo would greet people good Shabbos throughout the whole week. And when someone asked him, someone said to him, why, it's the middle of the week. Why, why are you wishing me a good Shabbos? He says, because it's Shabbos Cholomite. That's what he said. Okay, but what were we supposed to do right? What did God want from this test to begin with? I think this is what he wanted us to say. We were supposed to mourn Moshe. We were supposed to say we've lost the greatest the, the greatest human being ever? Remember, Moshe is the greatest prophet that ever existed and ever will exist. Mashiach will be greater in other aspects, but not in prophecy. Moshe remains the greatest prophet that will ever exist. We say Torah emet. The Torah is a Torah of truth, and it's for all generations. This is why this concept, which a lot of people just dismiss as a very sort of like, inc- like just incidental phraseology, this idea that the Torah, oh, another name for the Torah is the Old Testament. Chas v'shalom. Chas v'shalom. God forbid, this is really a, 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 a slander. It's a slander. Because it suggests that the Torah is not forever. That the Torah somehow has been replaced. Chas v'shalom. Moshe is the greatest prophet that ever existed and ever will exist. The Torah remains true for all eternity. All eternity. Very, very important to understand. Okay. So now... What happened? We should have said, God, we lost Moshe and cried our eyes out and ripped our garment and everything like this. And then we should have said, but God, we still have you. God, we have you. We don't need an intermediary. We have you. We can be in a direct relationship with you. We are in a direct relationship with you. And I believe that that would have been the final, the final, final thing. And then Mashiach. Then Mashiach. There was one little wispy little thread separating like the heavens and the earth. Just, we just had to have our recognition, God, it's us and you. And that's it. But instead, we went for this intermediary, this golden calf, and we took that little wispy thread and we turned it into an iron bar. Now, let's put it into relationship terms. Can you imagine you're on your wedding night? This is your wedding night. You know, you had the ceremony. You had, you know, I'll tell you something interesting. At a wedding ceremony... When is a couple officially married? So I think most people think, you know, they step on the glass, they leave the chuppah, they're married, right? 
I think most people think this, but according to the Rambam, you're not married until you're in the Yichud room, until you're alone with your wife. And now listen to this idea. It's very interesting. You're officially married, you ready? When you are publicly alone. When the community sees the two of you behind closed doors, just the two of you, and says, kosher, it's fine, no problem. According to the Rambam, that's when you're officially married, when you're publicly alone, and it's okay. Interesting. So now imagine, we've just gotten the Torah at Mount Sinai. God has spoken to us with the kisses of his mouth. We're in this unbelievable love relationship. Now imagine you're on your wedding night with your husband, with your wife. And the chaperone comes into your wedding room (laughs) and says, you know, I, I just want to make sure everything is okay. I'll be the chaperone. And you would say, my friend, you know, you can go outside, read the newspaper, take a nap. We're okay. <laughs> you don't need a chaperone at that moment. You don't need one. It's just the two of you, and that's okay. That's okay. So what were we doing? What were we doing at Mount Sinai saying we need a chaperone? What were we doing? We had this. We didn't have vessels to hold the closeness. That's the point. We did not have vessels to hold the closeness. All right. Now I want to go into the roots of this problem. And I want to recommend a fixing. Because here's the thing. We can think of God as our king. And it's good. It's good. Hashem Melech. It's good. It's good. It's good. But I don't know if it's going to get us all the way to Mashiach. (laughs) I think it's got to be that sheer Hashirim relationship that's going to break down all that final, whatever those final obstacles are. I think that has to be our mindset and our relationship if we're going to get all the way to the end, right? Okay, so so how did we get into this problem? So if you go back to Parshis Yisra, I think it's chapter 20, verse 16 or 17, okay? If you want to look it up. God speaks the first commandment, and our souls flew out of our bodies, and then God had to resurrect, mass resurrection of the dead, like two and a half million people come back to life. And then God speaks the second commandment, our souls fly out of our bodies again, 
And God has to bring back this massive (laughs) congregation of people back literally from the dead. And then we said to Moshe these words. Listen very carefully. Moshe, you get the rest of the Torah. Do you hear what happened at that moment? We got maxed out. We didn't have vessels that were wide enough to hold the light anymore. We hit our point of limitation. Okay. So it's good for a person to know their own limits. You have to know your own limits and you have to grow in a way that makes sense to you. All right, the idea is that the best thing to do is if you can take on a new thing, even if it's small, even if it's very small. You know, one of the great people of the generation, I forgot who it was, but they asked him, what, what new thing are you going to do on Rosh Hashanah? And he said, when I do the Birkat Hamazon, the benching, I'm going to bench from a book. I'm not going to say it by memory. This is someone who knew the <laughs> all of Torah, right? And this is what he took on, that when I do Birkat Amazon, I'm going to do it from a book. Because the great people understand that when you make positive change in your life, you do small things, but after you do a small thing, you make it very real. Now it's part of you, you're not going backwards anymore. Okay? But, and I heard... This teaching, which I always reference because I think it's beautiful, the word halacha, which means Jewish law, that's kind of a, not a great translation of it. It really means the way, okay? Like this is the, the rhythm of the universe, the flow of the universe. But halacha has the word holech in it, which means to walk and not to run. In other words, as you take on more things, you do it, one step at a time. Okay, so the idea is that you want to expand your vessels to hold more light, more and more, slowly, slowly, more and more light. You see, I think what happened was we got scared. When we saw Moshe wasn't there anymore, we thought, can we be in this relationship with God? Do we have vessels to hold this light? And we thought, we don't. We don't. We don't have vessels to hold the light. But if we're going to get to the Messianic era, we have to expand our vessels to be able to hold more light. And the greatest way to expand your vessel is through tshuva. Is to look at what you've done in your life and say, could I have done it better? And the greatest way to do tshuva is to say, Not could I have done it better, but I'm in a relationship with you, God. I want to do it better. 
That's called tshuva me'ava, tshuva from love. And that's the highest. That expands our vessels in the most beautiful way. Okay. Now, I really want to explain what I mean about expanding our vessels. That means our ability to receive. Our ability to receive. And now, just to give you a very easy bit of imagery, right? Imagine I have this diamond. It's a diamond that I have to hold with my whole hand. It's so big. And now imagine you're wearing some very fashionable clothing and it's just got a little pocket. <laughs> Sometimes the pockets are sewn up, right? So it makes a perfect seam. It shouldn't look bad, right? Imagine I have this big diamond. I'm trying to put it into your pocket, but it doesn't fit into your pocket. <laughs> That's what we're talking about. If you make your pocket larger, then I can just put the diamond in your pocket. If your pocket is so little, how am I going to put the diamond in your pocket? It says that there is a deadline on creation. You know what that means? That means this imperfect world. You see, like I like to say, Torah believes in evolution more than Darwin believes in evolution. Darwin says that, the wor- that life started from a single-celled entity and evolved into who we are right now. But the question is, where did that single cell come from? And where did time and space come from to hold that single cell? So Judaism says, The entire world is evolving, and it's never stopped evolving. It's not just the individual person. We're still evolving. The world itself is still evolving. And we're evolving into this massive vessel, which can hold more and more light, the light of perfection itself. And God tells us that process is going on right now, and it's going to complete itself. Now, here's the question. And we call that completion of the process Mashiach. That will be the perfection of the world. Like I always like to say, everybody's got the same question, whether you can articulate it or not, which is, if there is a God, why is the world so messed up? Everybody has this question. And the answer is, because the world isn't finished yet. That's the answer. God made us partners with him to finish the world. Or as Reb Shlomo put it so brilliantly, if God created the world perfect, you see, most people think God created a perfect world and then we messed it up and we're trying to get back to zero. That's not what's going on. As Reb Shlomo put it, if the Garden of Eden was so perfect, what was the snake doing there? That fantastic? If the Garden of Eden was so perfect, what was the snake doing there? And one of my favorite gematrias in the world. When you first hear it, you go, how can this be? I don't understand. It's impossible. But once you understand the reason for it, you go, oh, yes, of course. That makes perfect sense. Nachash, which means snake, as in the Garden of Eden snake, 
which is this level of imperfection in the world, right? Nachash is gematria 358, which is the gematria of the word Mashiach. Can you imagine Nachash and Mashiach? Root evil and the greatest manifestation of good have the same number? How could that be? The reason is because we were supposed to take this Nachash energy, which is the unfinished energy, the raw energy of creation, and by saying no to it, right? By saying no to the Satan, by saying no to it, we would have harnessed it, contained it, and that containment of that energy would have been the finishing of creation and that would have been Mashiach. This is why Nachash and Mashiach are the same number. Because once we control that energy, then that's the end. That's the completion of creation. So we have to expand our vessels. And now let me tell you what this means. The perfection of the world was put into the world from the very beginning of the world. Okay? So the perfection of the world is part of the world already. And now it's blossoming, blossoming, blossoming. But we have an interesting word. So Mashiach is going to come. This is part of God's plan. It's already been put into creation. But now, like they say in the Hollywood detective shows, police shows, so to speak, God says the following. We can do this the hard way, or we can do this the easy way. <laughs> right? That's always, that's always the scary moment when you hear that from the detective when he's talking to you when you're alone in the, in the interrogation room, right? We can do this the hard way, or we can do this the easy way. You see, the easy way is when we expand our vessels to hold the light. And then, all of a sudden, our vessels are big enough to hold the light. That's not what happened with the golden calf. At the golden calf, we asked for a chaperone. We asked for that intermediary because we were afraid to be in that direct relationship with God because our vessels hadn't expanded enough to hold that light. We weren't ready for the depth of that relationship yet. That next quantum level of light is coming down either way. But you know what? If we don't have the vessels to hold that light, and that next quantum level of light, messianic light, comes down, and we don't have the vessels to hold it, there's a word, there's a word that's going to describe how that's going to manifest in the world. In English, do you know what that word is? Apocalypse. When people talk about the apocalypse, that's what they're talking about. It's when that next quantum level of light drops down from heaven 
and we don't have a way to contain that light. So we have to expand our vessels so that we're ready to contain that light. Now I want to show you this in the letters. This is something that I came up with, but I, I'm just telling you what's there, okay? It says in Gomorrah Megillah that if a pasuk, if a verse from the Torah begins with the word vayehi, something bad is going to happen. If it begins with the word vahaya, something good is going to happen. Okay, very straightforward. So I was looking at those two words because we know only good comes from God. Only good comes from God. So I thought to myself, I have to analyze these two words, vayahi and vahaya. Vayahi, something bad's going to happen. Vahaya, something good is going to happen. Let me look at the letters. And you want to hear something amazing? Both of those letters are only composed of the holiest name of God, Yudke Vavke. So what's the difference? That's interesting in itself. Both are spelled from the name of God. So what's the difference between the word vayahi, something bad, and vahaya, something good? Well, vahaya, something good, it's the yudke vavke, it's the letters of Hashem's name, exactly, but in a different order. Interesting. And I'll give you a little, a little side teaching here. Every month has a different it's called Tsiruf, a different combination of the four letters name of God, because you can make 12 different permutations of the four letter name, and there are 12 months. So each month has a different combination. Do you know so, but most of them don't spell a word. There's an instance where the combination rearranged spells a word. You know what, you know what month that is? Tishra. It's Vahaya. Vahaya is the combination for the month of Tishrei, which means, remember, Tishrei is where we have Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. It's in Tishrei that the next year is decided. And isn't it interesting and a beautiful example of Jewish optimism that in the month where the new year is going to be decided, it spells out the word Vahaya. Something good is going to happen. So when you head into Rosh Hashanah, you have to be optimistic. You have to say something good is going to happen. Very important. Okay, so now let's get to Vayahi. So Vayahi also has the letters of the yud ke vav ke, But there's a difference. There's two Yuds and only one He. Okay? Vahaya, something good is going to happen, has one Yud and two hays. What's the difference? Well, we have to know what is a yud and what is a hay. Okay. So a hay, I heard from Reb Shlomo, is a vessel for the light. It's something that holds the light. So with the name of God and rearranged as Vahaya, something good is going to happen, you have one yud and two hays. The yud is the emanation of light. Okay, it's a point of light that's brilliant beyond, 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 beyond. It's the yud of the yudke vavke, right? Just this massive projection of light. So if you have such a big projection of light, 
You better have two vessels, right? Now, what is what is vayahi? Something quote unquote bad. You have two yuds and only one hay. You have two emanations of light or two points where light is emanating and only half the vessels to hold it. And that's why it means something bad is happening. It's not bad because there's only good from God. So now we have a new definition for bad. You ready for this? It's good that you don't have vessels to hold. That's what Vayahi means. Something good is happening, but you or the world or the Jewish people don't have the vessels to hold that massive amount of light that's coming down. So do you see? It's only good. It's either good that you have vessels for, that's Vahaya, or it's good that you don't have vessels for, that's Vayahi. Do you understand? Okay. So now I'm going to finish, and I want to make all of these teachings, everything that we've been discussing, very practical, okay? In terms of what can we do in our own lives to, to make this to make this real and to make to make it better. What did I tell you? At Mount Sinai, it was the moment where we were shown that Moshe wasn't here anymore by the Satan, and we had this opportunity to say to God, but we still have you. We still have you. We're in a direct relationship with you. We don't need any outside party. But we didn't do it. And why didn't we do it? Because we were afraid of the closeness. Because our vessels, our ability to hold that closeness wasn't large enough. Or we didn't think it was hard, large enough. We were afraid it wasn't large enough. So here's, here's what I'm saying, and I'm saying this first and foremost, I'm saying it to myself. But I'm going to speak to myself right now, and it's for you too, okay? We have to expand our vessels. We have to do more. We have to get used to an increased closeness with God. Now, what does that mean? That means that maybe it means learning more Torah. Like, let's say you're learning Torah for an hour a day. So maybe it's an hour and ten minutes a day. Maybe it's two hours a day. Let's say you're doing a certain amount of nice things but do more nice things. Let's say that you regret certain things that you've done in your life. But do you look back on those things and still enjoy what you did? <laughs> like, how can I ever have gone against God? And how can I look back on what I did 
and still take enjoyment from when I went against God. All of these things are expanding our vessels. And now this is really important on an individual level, but this is really important in terms of the future that's imminent. It's coming. When? I don't know. That's up to God. But whenever God does it, and God is going to bring that extra dimension of light in the world, the more individually that we expand our vessels, the more the Jewish people's vessels expand, the more the world's vessels expand, and the more we'll be able at that climactic moment to have vessels to hold the light so that we can ease into this next era of the history of the world and not experience all of the, all of the trouble, which is the hard path. We don't want that. We don't want, why would we want that? Why would we want that in our own lives? Why would we want that for the world? We don't want that. And we can actually take very real practical measures in our lives right now to affect the future history of the world by just doing more. But again, holech, to walk, not to run. To do it in a way that we can, once we do it, now we're doing it. Slowly, as long as it's expanding, it doesn't matter what rate it's expanding at. It just has to be real. Okay. And remember, there's no better way to do it than with love. And we have to look at each other with a good eye. Don't just see the wrongdoing. See the battle going inside the person, even if they're doing the wrong thing, that they want to do the right thing. Okay? Because part of expanding the vessel is that we have to become more and more one. One vessel. One vessel. Okay? And when we look at each other with love and understanding, that also expands the vessels. Okay. So it says in the Gomorrah something very interesting, something very surprising, which is that Hashem gave two tests in, in Jewish history. Okay? One of the tests was the golden calf, and the other test was the incident of King David and Bathsheba. And both of these tests were designed to teach future generations a very, very important lesson. Okay? So it says, remember, King David is the soul of Mashiach. And King David sort of, it says, this is how they explain it, that he heard... He saw in the prayers, it says, Elokei Avraham, God of Avraham, Elokei Yitzchak, God of Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov, and God of Yaakov. And David Melech, King David said, No, what about me? <laughs> and God says, Well, you know, they're different than you. And God goes on and says, I tested them, and they passed my test. And King David says, then test me too. And from this we learn out something very interesting. 
which is that God always gives you the ability to pass a test unless you ask for the test. And so this is where we learn it out from. And God says, I'm even going to tell you how I'm going to test you. I'm going to test you with a woman. And it's going to be Bathsheba. And the whole story is very, very interesting. But it says in the Gomorrah in another place that anyone who says that King David sinned is mistaken. And yet we understand the whole incident with Bathsheba at least on the outside, it appeared to be wrong, and it appeared to be wrong to the extent that everyone understood it as wrongdoing. So that's why we talk about it as he did wrong. But on a deeper level, he didn't. But because it appeared to so many people that he did, then, you know, on some level, he did do wrong in terms of the eyes of the people. Anyway, here's the point. The point is, is that God did this so that any, and of course, David Amelech's reaction to this is to do tshuva, is to return to God, and God accepts his, his, his tshuva, his return. And, and so the Gomorrah explains that why did God bring this test to King David and to have King David not pass this test? To teach people for all time Till the end of days, that if King David can do something wrong, if the soul of Mashiach can do something wrong and still fix it, then you can fix whatever it is also. And now, so to speak, what was the King David of generations? So, so the Gomorrah says, ah, maybe you say that about an individual can return, but can an entire community return? Can the whole Jewish people return? So God says, what is the greatest, I'm going to take the greatest generation that ever existed, the generation that received the Torah at Mount Sinai, and I'm going to show you that they're going to make a mistake also, and I'm going to show you that they are going to return from this mistake as well, to teach you that not just can individuals return, but entire congregations, the entire Jewish people can return, because there is no generation higher than the generation that received the Torah at Mount Sinai. And if they made a mistake, and if they return, then you can also return. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.